The Apostle Paul tackles a topic at the beginning of chapter 8 that is going to impact our preaching for the next few weeks. The controversy of whether or not a Christian should eat meat that had been potentially offered in a sacrifice to a false god. That was still going on in the time that the New Testament was written. There were many pagan temples where offerings would be made. And so whether meat offered at those temples and then sold in the marketplace was acceptable for a Christian to partake in or not will be something we'll be diving into in the next few weeks. Now, to clarify, this is not a debate about whether a vegetarian lifestyle is better for you or how eating meat might affect your physical health. You can probably deduce by my quarantine 15 that I'm carrying right here that uh, I stand in favor of meeting, eating meat. That's, uh, that's my personal conviction. Um, last year's shortage of toilet paper wasn't that big of a deal, but when they started to say you couldn't buy very much beef at Costco, then I started to sweat it out. I was upset about that. Uh, no, this isn't about vegetarianism. It's about something far more important than our physical health. This is about our spiritual well-being. It's about the way that we live our lives because the way that we live our lives should be consistent with the righteousness that Jesus Christ imputes into every believer who puts their faith in Him and repents of their sin. Lately, physical health has absolutely dominated the minds of most citizens on earth. We've seen sweeping changes pressed upon us in the interest of preserving our physical health. And for many, these changes have had an undeniably negative impact on the health of the Spirit. And we've been enjoying live in-person services for months and months now, but there are brothers and sisters who have not seen their church family yet. They have yet to reconvene. And so it is wise that we care for our physical bodies. The Apostle Paul reminded us, chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And to neglect our physical health and purity is to neglect a gift that God has given to us for our good. But our spiritual health should be of infinitely greater importance to us. No matter how carefully you care for this body, it's one day going to expire. The spirit within you will not. Are you in Christ today? Then you will get a new body one day. You will not get a new spirit. You'll have the spirit that you have now. It will be a glorified spirit, but it will be your spirit. So if eating meat that had a connection with the worship of false gods had the potential to harm the spiritual health of the Corinthian brothers and sisters, then they needed to be aware of that. They needed to guard against that. Now, one of the critical facts that influences Paul's teaching on this matter is the existence or the non-existence of these so-called false gods. Are false gods actual beings? Are they inferior to the true God? Are they beings competing with the real God for our attention and our worship? Do they exist only in our minds? Are they an empty distraction, not even worthy of the slightest consideration? The answer to these kinds of questions will come to bear on the way that we believers deal with this practical issue of how to live our lives. And in the Corinthians case, that's whether or not they should eat this meat that had potentially been sacrificed to idols. So verses 4 through 6 is going to speak to those ideas. Chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and, or on earth, 
as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many quote-unquote lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Would you bow with me in a brief word of prayer as we ask that the Lord prepare our hearts for what we will learn today. Almighty God, we are lacking so much wisdom compared to you. You know all things, and we know only what has been revealed. Father, we think we know more than we do, so we need your word to be a refining power in our lives. We can confess here, those of us who are in Christ, that you, God, you exist. You are more real than anything else we've ever encountered. But there is still so much more that we need to understand about spiritual things, about the cosmos that we live in, and about realities that pertain to our existence. And so please guide us, Father. Help us as your children to know what is right and what is wrong. Spirit, we pray that you would help us to discern between good and evil. In Christ, we ask that you would be glorified in the ways that we apply these things in obedience. We thank you for all this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen. In the first three verses of the chapter that we studied last week, Paul has just taught us two important things about the subject of knowledge. Do you remember what they were? He told us that we are to approach knowledge with an attitude of humility. Otherwise, we may become puffed up. We might become arrogant in the way that we think about what we know. And then secondly, what we know is less important than what we love. More accurate, who we love, that our knowledge is secondary to the fact that we are to love the Lord God, to put our trust in Him, and that knowledge is useful to us in so much as it helps us to grow in our appreciation and affection for the Father and worship Him according to His will, and in so much as it equips us to be a helpful blessing to our brothers and sisters and our neighbors whom we are called to love. Having taken a brief side step, side street rather, uh, to talk about knowledge, Paul's now going to return to this contemporary issue of what to do with meat that had been sacrificed to false gods. Paul actually hones the topic down for us just a little bit here. In verse 1, last week he had said, now concerning food offered to idols. But now in verse 4, he adds one clarifying word, therefore as to eating of food offered to idols. So the real crux of the matter has to do with whether or not these redeemed believers having put their faith and trust in Jesus, would be dishonoring the God of love, the God of truth, or would they be putting themselves at spiritual risk if they were to buy this meat that was sold in the market, some of which came from idol temples? His friends in Corinth had been thinking about these things, and they had drawn some conclusions of their own. And so in verse 4, Paul quotes two more of these small slogans from the first letter that he had received from them. These slogans are, as we spoke about last week, they're kind of brief summaries of the way that they live out the, 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 their theology. And so these two slogans that he's going to deal with here, and starting in verse 4, is uh, that an idol has no real existence. That was one of their sayings. An idol has no real existence. And the second is this. There is no God but one. There is no God but one. So it's, it's hard to find fault with either of these slogans. They are indeed faithful sayings that describe the true state of things. But Paul is concerned with how these slogans are being used to justify certain unloving behaviors among the Corinthian people. So in the verses that we are studying this week, 
He's going to take the time to examine them carefully so that we have a very firm grasp on what they mean. And then next week, we're going to return to addressing their application as we get into verses 7 and beyond. So let's look a little more carefully at the first slogan. An idol has no real existence. Now, this slogan is preceded by the qualifier, we know that. Paul says, we know that, and then he agrees with their slogan, which is, an idol has no real existence. This is Paul's way of identifying that slogan as an orthodox slogan. When we use the word orthodox, what we mean by that is that it fits the reliable, enduring teaching of God's word. And so the Corinthians weren't wrong to believe these slogans, and they weren't wrong to proclaim them. But what exactly does it mean that an idol has no real existence? Do we truly understand that slogan? Obviously, idols have some kind of an existence, don't they? People own physical idols. I remember playing on a Little League team when I was in the sixth grade. And uh, I became really good friends with a kid who played third base all the time, mostly because I wanted to play third base. But I was not very good at third base, so he got to play third base. So I would talk to him about it. And he invited me over one day to hang out with him at his house. And so I went to his house, and just as you walked into his front door, right in the entryway was literally a shrine with idols on it to Buddha. His family was Buddhist. And so obviously there were literal idols there, and they would say prayers to those idols. They would, they would offer worshipful gifts to Buddha through that statue. So people own physical idols. They are literal things in the world. The scripture commands us not to make idols, so it's acknowledging that people do this. We're told not to worship idols, so they do have some kind of material existence at the very least. Even if according to the slogan, their existence is not a real existence. See, an idol by its very nature is a lie. The definition of an idol is a cultic image, any kind of representative image of an alleged transcendent being. Now, the key word in that definition is alleged, right? If the Word of God has taught us anything, it has taught us that there is only one God. We hear this very, very early on as God establishes a covenant people for himself. He gives them a law by which they are to live. And remember, right before Moses brings the people into the Holy Land after they're wandering in the wilderness, after they've been freed from slavery by God and his miraculous power, he gives them the second telling of the law. That's what Deuteronomy means, a second telling of the law. And the, the very core tenet of the second telling of the law is found in Deuteronomy 6, which we titled the Shema. It is the greatest command that we are to love the Lord our God, that there is no other God but Him, the Lord our God, the Lord He is one. And then we see it again repeated in the first commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment speaks to it as well and particularly talks about these physical idols that people sometimes make. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or that is in the earth below or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So God is making it very clear to his people that he is the only one and that there is no room for another competing God when it comes to the worship that Israel is to give. The command here is don't make images of other gods. They would be imaginary because no other gods truly exist. People who worship these images are worshiping falsehoods. They're worshiping lies. For only God is God. 
the command here is also, don't make images of me. Now, why would God tell us not to make images of him? Shouldn't we uh, want to express our love for him by making statues of our God and making images of our God? Well, he wants to make, us, make it clear to us also that the things that we make can never compare to what he truly is. When a person makes an image of God, he is essentially making a lie because it falls short of the image of God. Nothing we could create could come close to accurately capturing the scope of God's wonderful nature. I don't care how artistic we are. I don't care how much detail we include. An image of God will always fall short of an accurate depiction of God. And so that image has the potential to be dangerous for man because it is in some ways proclaiming a God that is less than what the true God is. Man, in his limited nature, will identify more with lesser material things than he will with a transcendent God that is hard for him to understand. So the created image of God, they will associate with true God probably easier than they would the real God who is infinite and undiscernible, right? And so he will often resort to worshiping the picture, the created thing, rather than the actual God. Many of you have seen The Passion of the Christ. It's a noble effort to try to create a visual of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. But the death, burial, and resurrection was far more than what that movie could ever show us. Jim Cavizio is not Jesus. And yet many will think of his face every time they think of Jesus. Is that appropriate for us to do? How important was this concept of do not make an image of your God? It was so important that if you read about God's instructions to his people to build a tabernacle and a place of worship for him, when they built an altar, which is where they laid their offerings on, uh, up to God, that they were to make the altar out of unhewn stones. They weren't even allowed to put a chisel to the rocks that built the altar. They had to find natural stones that God had made because God knew that the wickedness of man's heart would admire the workmanship rather than the God. So the, the first slogan was that there is no such thing as a God other than God. The second slogan is that there is only one God is also faithful. It follows then that an idol has no real existence to the extent that an idol is trying to pass itself off as what it is not, the one and only God. Though these fake gods were not real, the worship of these gods was widespread in the city of Corinth. So idols posed a practical danger to Paul's friends in Corinth. Historically, what were some of the idols that were commonly worshipped there in Corinth? Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of love, of beauty, of pleasure, and fertility. And in Corinth was a large mountainous plateau. Somewhat, if you, if you had taken Mount Diablo and just kind of chopped the top off of it, it was raised up above the city, and it was called the Acrocorinth. And the Acrocorinth was a place where people would go up to worship Aphrodite. There was actually a temple to her on top of that plateaued area. And so the worship of Aphrodite was kind of looking down on the city all the time. People came from miles around to give offerings to this goddess of love and fertility. In the very center of Corinth was a temple to Apollo, who was the Greek god of music, of archery, of medicine, of the sun. Not too far, just a block away from this big temple to Apollo was another temple to Octavia. Now, Octavia is interesting because she's not a god. She is the sister of the emperor. 
So you, get, you begin to get a picture that the Greeks were getting their material and spiritual things mixed up pretty heavily to the point where they had a temple to their god Apollos in the middle of town, and then just off to the side, they had a temple to a person that they were supposed to revere almost like a semi-god. Each year, or every other year rather, in Corinth, there was uh, an Olympic-style game called the Isthmus Games, which were held in honor of Poseidon, the Greek god of the sea. And this gathering of athletes, these, these contests of skill, were second only to the Olympics themselves in stature and importance to the Greek people. There was also a, a cult called the Cult of Isis that, that was very prominent in Corinth. This was imported from Egypt. Uh, this cult exalted a false goddess who exemplified the attainment of and pursuit of wisdom and understanding. So there's all these different kinds, and there's more that I could list for you here. These idols had a kind of existence, but they have no real existence. They existed culturally. They existed as false options for glorification of a god. But they do not exist in a way that pagan humans who worship them believe them to exist. So there was a temple to Apollos, but there is no real god Apollos floating around in the universe somewhere shooting his arrows and playing his harp. He doesn't exist. He is not real. There is no Isis, though there was a cult following Isis, and there's people believing that if they offered to Isis, they would gain a knowledge. That goddess does not exist. These are the imaginations of human minds, minds that are not content to know the true and living God. So we think back to the call to worship that we read this morning in Isaiah. After declaring so plainly that there is no God but the true God. If you were to finish reading out that chapter, I encourage you to do it uh, later on in your personal times of devotion if you have time. Isaiah 44. Later on in that chapter, Isaiah carefully describes how the people of Israel had gone about cutting down a tree. And they drug that tree back into town. And then they cut the tree in half. And half of the tree's wood they split and they used as firewood so that they could cook a meal for themselves. The wood was serving their purposes. The other half of that piece of wood they carved into the image of some imaginary god. And they bowed down and they worshipped the imaginary god. And Isaiah, in pointing out this stark contrast, the great irony of their actions was criticizing their willingness to worship something that was clearly not real. That image, that false picture of a god, wouldn't even exist if the hands of man did not build it. They were worshiping a god they had invented themselves. And so in verse 44, or verse 20 of chapter 44, he says, He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? In other words, the idol that he had made for himself was nothing short of a lie. So to the Corinthian who formerly worshipped at any number of pagan temples, the declaration that an idol has no real existence was to be a doctrinal assurance that what they thought they were worshipping wasn't what they thought it was. And it couldn't do what they thought it could do for them. It had no real existence the way that they had been deceived into believing it did. But let us ask some more questions about these false images, these idols. Is God the only supernatural being? He is not. While only God is God, there are other created beings who were in some way transcendent over man, 
but not in the perfect way that God is transcendent over man. Appropriate to this category of not human but not God would be angels, right? The angels are a class of created being that serve as sometimes messengers of God, sometimes worshipers of God, sometimes warriors who fight on behalf of God, along with special categories of angels such as seraphim and cherubim. These angels are righteous, but they're not as righteous as God is. They uh, have ability, but they don't have the ability that God has. Also fitting in this category of not a human, but not God, would be demons, wouldn't it be? Demons were beings that originally started their created cycle as angels, angels of light, but they fell. They committed error against God, and so they were cast out of their heavenly dwelling place. They were banished from the presence of God, and they are connected with the rebellion of the third and final category of supernatural being that we'll look at this morning. There's probably more we could explore, but Satan himself. Now, Satan exists. He is not a boogeyman that was created by Christian parents to scare their kids into obedience. He is a real being who exists in a spiritual state, who does have a degree of freedom and influence on the world that we live in today, but who is in no stretch of the imagination as powerful or as all-knowing or as holy as only God can be. Now, these forces that I just mentioned, angels, demons, Satan, these forces are real, though not in the way that so many people in our world have started to think of them as being. While angels serve the purposes of God, and are in no way trying to deceive man, the same cannot be said about Satan and his demons. These spiritual beings have an agenda. And that agenda is the destruction of whatever order God has built into his creation. And in particular, they strive to keep people from placing their faith and hope in Jesus Christ. These forces are active. Satan and his demons are engaged in a kind of spiritual warfare that occurs largely beyond the scope of what you and I can see. Their tactics are, for the most part, hidden. And deception is one of their most effective weapons against us. And though much of the meat in the Corinthian market was sacrificed to empty so-called gods that didn't actually exist, it is possible that behind some of those false gods were the deceiving spirits of demons. Demons that desired to confuse and weaken people believers and non-believers alike, and to keep those who have yet to believe from seeing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to me for a moment to Psalm chapter 106. <clears throat> Psalm 106, right in the middle of your Bible, pretty easy to find. Listen to what this inspired hymn teaches us regarding the false gods that were encountered by Old Testament Israel. Speaking of the Israelites who advanced into Canaan, and received their promised land. They had been given this promise. Uh, first it was given to Abraham, and they had inherited it as his seed. In Psalm 106, 34 through 38, we read, They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, which that means is that when they went into Canaan, they were called to make war against the people and to eradicate or push them out of the land. But they didn't do that. The Israelites thought they could approve on God's scheme, and so they allowed some of those foreign people to stay. They allowed them to have freedom and to worship their false gods. In verse 35, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. So the presence of these false 
peoples, these presence of these peoples who worship false gods, began to have an impact on the Israelite believers. Verse 36, the Israelites served their idols, and be, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. You see the great mistake that was made by these Israelites when they entered into the Holy Land, but they didn't have the stomach to do what God had called them to do. Their unwillingness to follow God's law to the word caused them to compromise. And their exposure to these false gods, though they weren't in, in, in reality gods per se, but they were something more than a man, something spiritual and different than man, their exposure to these demonic gods caused them to err by worshiping not only Yahweh, but by giving some of their attention and focus to these other beings that had some degree of power. Because Israel not only tolerated but absorbed the customs of pagan people who didn't know or trust in the true God, they fell into their despicable patterns of worship, even giving their own children to sacrifice. These are abominable offerings that would never be pleasing to the living God. And they made those offerings to gods like Ashtoreth and Dagon and Baal, gods that do not exist, but behind which are fake, or behind which are deceiving demons who are trying to pass their works off as the works of real gods. Paul's going to later indicate in chapter 10, verses 18 through 21, that while all foods have been declared clean by the Lord and are eligible for the Christian to consume and enjoy, so food itself doesn't have a spiritual value, per se, there is something to be said, and Paul will address this later, about consuming those clean foods in conjunction with the blasphemous worship of demons who are dressed up like gods. So we still can make a mistake in eating something that's pure and fine to eat if it is connected in some way to the honor of a false god who is actually a demon in disguise. So the whole of pagan worship is a charade, but behind the facade of those false gods can be actual demonic powers who receive worship and adoration as a result of their deceptive trickery. And this is not pleasing to the real God who hates deception and will not share his glory with any other. So while there is in fact freedom for the believer to eat all kinds of meats, even those that were used in conjunction maybe with cultic practices, any believer who cared about the exclusive worship of the one true God needed to be careful that their expression of freedom didn't somehow give worshipers or give worshipful honor to a demon that was trying to pass himself off as a true God. An awareness of these spiritual creatures that seem to transcend the material existence that we're familiar with is not intended as a scare tactic by Paul, but rather to temper the pride that they are clearly susceptible to. What were we just talking about last week? We were talking about how their knowledge had made them puffed up. Even that slogan, which is true, had stoked the pride in their hearts. There is no idol. There is no such thing as a real idol in the world. And it has caused them to drop their guard because, yes, there is no God competing with God, but there are demons. There are spiritual forces in the heavenly places against which we do battle. So let us return to the humble mindset that God declares for us, to a grounded reality, one that doesn't think too highly of who we are and what we know, but marvels at how transcendent the one true God is. So we put our eyes upon verse 6, friends. Yet for us, yet for us, and he is speaking clearly of believers here, 
who can see God now in a clear way, thanks to the gift of regeneration. For us who have had the veil of deception removed from our eyes, for us who have seen the weight of our sin and how serious it is, we've been, uh, it has been revealed to us our own selfish rebellion against God. To, for us who have learned of the perfect life and the gracious sacrifice of Jesus Christ, for us there is only one God. And that God is unlike any other. He is set apart. He is unique. The state of his existence is so holy that we struggle to try and comprehend even the form of it. Paul's going to scratch the surface of it here, doesn't he? Verse 6 declares that the Father is God. The Father is God. He bears the title of Father because he gives life and breath to all things. In him we live and move and have our existence. He is the creator. He is the provider. And so he is the Father. There is only one God. The Father is God. But if you've been blessed to see throughout the pages of Scripture the consistent picture of the doctrine of the Trinity, then you know that there's more to the story. Now, there are those who desire to push Jesus and the Holy Spirit out of the realm of God and into the category that we described earlier, the category that angels and demons and Satan belong into, that realm of somewhere more than man, but something less than God. So as your shepherds, the elders of this church, have been tasked to help you be aware of those who would falsely teach a wrong Jesus to you, a Jesus that is not represented in the pages of Scripture. And so we need to be aware of these things. Those individuals who deny the Trinity might try and grab a hold of this verse, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and say, See, there is only one God, and it's the Father, not the Son. It doesn't say the Spirit is God here. It says that the Father is God here. So your Mormon neighbor or your Jehovah's Witness friend or your coworker who's involved with Iglesia ni Cristo or any number of different cults that teach that Jesus is less than God might point right to 1 Corinthians 8.6 and declare that the debate is concluded. One God, and that one God is the Father. Here's your defense. Keep reading. Keep reading, friends. So many heresies and so many false teachings would be extinguished quite easily if we would just keep reading. Clearly, the Father is God. We don't need to wrestle with that this morning. But what else does the Apostle Paul declare in this very same verse? He declares that there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We need the whole story here, don't we? What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? Well, the word in the Greek is kurios, and it is a very important word. It is one who exercises absolute ownership rights over someone else. A kurios is a supreme leader. Now, in the Old Testament, they often used the word Adonai in place of the proper name Yahweh because they didn't want to accidentally blaspheme the name, the proper name of God. And if you were to find an equivalent word in the Greek in the New Testament for how they would address the Lord God, a good argument has been made that kurios is the equivalent to Adonai in the Old Testament, which means mighty God. So how can Jesus rightfully be Lord? How can he be kurios, master? How can he exercise absolute ownership rights over all 
if he is not God himself. Jesus is identified in, as Lord in verse 6, but his action is described as well. What does it say about what he does? The verse says, through whom, through Jesus, are all things. Meaning that the existence of all things come through Christ. And through Jesus, we exist. So we're not exempted from that. How is this different from what was said of the Father in the earlier part of the verse? All things exist from the Father. All things come through into existence through the Son. Can you see how united their cosmic activity is? Can you have one of these things without the other? The Father and the Son, as well as the Holy Spirit, are unique persons, but not in the same way that you and I are unique persons. We are not united to the same degree that, that the three persons of the Holy Trinity are, and that is owing to the unique and holy nature of their being. And if you missed uh, the sermon that we addressed, I think it was back during Christmas, wasn't it, where we, deal, we, we dealt with uh, the, the Trinity and the person and nature of, of Jesus Christ, then you might go back into our archives and listen to some of those sermons. Essentially what was communicated there was that you and I and every other living thing in this world is a being that has one nature. We exist according to the rules and the guidelines of that nature. But when we approach the throne of God, we're approaching a being who is different than us in every categorical way. He is one being, one nature, but that nature expresses itself in three persons that in some ways are unique from one another, but never in a way that contradicts with the other two. So Father and Son and Spirit are not independent beings. They don't have independent natures. They share one common nature, and that nature is the only nature of God. No other being can share in that nature. The Father and the Son, as well as the Spirit, are unique persons, but not in the same way that you and I are unique persons. The same things can be said about the Holy Spirit, of course, who Paul has already spoken of extensively in this epistle. But since the Holy Spirit's not mentioned here, we're going to be faithful to this particular text today and stay focused on the relationship between the Father and the Son. Clearly, we can see that the only way that the Father can be God and the Son can be God and there can only be one God is that the two have to be one in a very unique and supernatural way. So to help us understand this, let's consider what it means to be God. Let's examine that unique nature that exists only to the divine being. To rightly be considered God is not to be something merely more than man. That's not enough to be God. One must be holy and set apart from all other beings. So the following things must be true of any being who makes a claim to be God. That being, to be divine, to be God, must be original. Original. What does that mean? That means that they are their own origin, that no one else made them or created them, that there is no before time before they existed. They are unbeholden to anything. They have no obligation to anything because nothing brought them into existence. They, in fact, are the creator of all things. Everything is originated in them. Every other thing is beholden to that particular being. In order to be God, that must be true of you. Godhood is not something that you can attain to, therefore. Nobody can acquire the position or status of Godhood. You are either God, and you will always be God, or you are not God. It's as simple as that. Now, most people would say that's definitely true of the Father. Is it true of the Son? John chapter 1, verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, who is called here the living word, 
all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. How much of the creation came through Jesus Christ? 99% of it? 99.9% of it? All of it. All of it came through Christ. So if something was made, if something is not original, then it had to be made through Christ. If Christ is a made thing, then how could he make himself? He could not. That would be a logical contradiction. So Jesus Christ is original. Nothing made him. He has always existed. He was in the beginning with God. A being that ascribes to Godhood must be original. They must also be eternal. Not only does their origin have to be in themselves and not because of anyone else's actions, but they must continue on forever. There is no end to God's existence. There is no beginning. All things have got to find their beginning in this God. True God cannot be destroyed. He cannot cease to exist. He will never expire. So John chapter 1 said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. But Luke 1 also testifies to the otherness of Christ, to his holy status as God in the flesh. Verse 32 of Luke 1 says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So this curios, this label of Lord, who owns all things, will not just be a temporary label for him. He's not elected for a term, friends. Jesus reigns, and he reigns forever. This is an attribute only God can lay claim to, and Christ can lay claim to it. The third attribute that is unique only to one who is God is that they must be perfectly righteous. Perfectly righteous. True God being the highest being is the definition of perfection. True God cannot be defiled by sin or else they would not be eternal. They can't be corrupted. There is no rusting God. There is no falling apart of God. He must be perfectly righteous forever and his purity must be sure. So by its very nature, sin is the absence of perfection. It is the enemy of Godhood. The Father has no sin. Can we say the same thing about the Son? Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. The reason why Christ could offer himself as a sacrifice on our behalf is because he was the only holy one, the only one untainted by the sin that was introduced to creation by Adam. Another attribute that is unique to one who has the nature of God is that they must be unchangeable. They must be unchangeable. The essence of true God cannot be defiled, for God is perfection, and any deviation from perfection is a downgrade. God doesn't grow. He doesn't learn. He doesn't evolve because he's already perfect. So that is the uniqueness of the nature of God. He doesn't acquire anything because it is already all his. He cannot change. That which is perfect cannot be added to or improved upon. Is that true of Jesus Christ? We would proclaim it's true of the Father, and even those cults I mentioned earlier would. But Hebrews 13.8 says this of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today 
and forever. Yesterday, today, and forever. He is immutable. His essence, his nature will remain what it is for eternity. You're starting to see the complete unity that exists between the Father and the Son. One last characteristic that is unique to one who has Godhood. They must be almighty. They must be almighty for they are capable of every good thing. God is unbound by a greater authority. There is no one who created him, no one he's beholden to. So there is no law or precept that he is underneath. He is the truth. He is capable of every good thing. He never lacks a resource because God made everything. Everything rightly belongs to him since he upholds the world and the universe by the word of his power. Everything is sustained by him. So God has got to be almighty. And in Matthew 28, verse 18, this is the part of the Great Commission that so many people just breeze right past, but it's so essential. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now there are men who have laid claim to that, but couldn't back it up. But Jesus has all authority on heaven and on earth. He has all power. There is no one who can stop his will or his plan. Each of these attributes can only be applied to God. All of these attributes are applicable to Father, Son, and if we teased out the scriptures, we would see that they are also applicable to the Holy Spirit. That is the divine nature, and it is unique to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, three persons sharing one being. Did the Greek pantheon meet these criteria? Categorically, no, they did not. If you were to study the history of these Greek gods that were made up by the Greeks and then adopted by the Romans and modified to fit their cultural purposes, you would find that they were constantly failing, that they were constantly dying and being reborn, that they were constantly struggling against one another, not unified, not on the same page, but often at battle with one another. They were essentially fallen people with superpowers. And that's why I think the, the Greek pantheon is kind of always got a little resurgence going. People like to read about that stuff because it, it stokes the embers of pride within us. Here's how the enemy works, friends. He capitalizes on our desires to be more than we are. Our desires cloud our judgment. They make us easily deceived. And so Satan comes along and he offers us the appearance of false gods that claim to match our very desires. The gods that human beings create for themselves tend to look much like themselves, just bigger, just stronger, just more free. We make gods up who are just like us, gods who are like us or who are what we want to be like. And then we worship those gods. And in doing so, what are we doing? Worshiping ourselves. We're worshiping some greater version of what we think we are. False worship is abominable to God because only God contains these perfect attributes of divinity that we just described. And he is the only one that deserves to be glorified for having those, those unique characteristics. So these idols are not what they seem to be. They are not properly gods. Does that make them completely relevant to the Christian? No, it does not. As we progress through chapter 8, the Apostle Paul will warn against the potential damage that these imposter gods can do, both to those who were weak in the faith 
and we're not sure about the status or the non-existence of these gods, and also to the arrogant who thought that they could eat at the festivals and participate with pagan activities because they were going to be invincible to the influence of those gods, and many of them stumbled and fell. But for us this morning, it is enough that we learn the following, that if you know what true God is, you will be better equipped to see what makes every other false god not a god. And if you know what the true God is, you'll be better equipped to worship the true God for being the one and only triune divinity that he is. Would you bow with me and close in a word of prayer? God, we are grateful for your majestic power put on display before us in the scriptures today. We ask that we would be in awe of you, Lord God, that you would not let us grow tired of wearying of weary of hearing about these things. Father, the the most elementary things about who you are are still incredibly captivating to us. And so help us to dwell on these things, to think about them, to let them roll around in our minds, God, as we consider the fact that there is no one who is quite like you. And God, let us be humbled, realizing that if we are honest with ourselves, we are not quite like you, that we need to learn and we need to grow. We need correction from a good father. We need your power and strength. We cannot endure apart from your sustaining hand. We are not eternal the way that you are. There is a beginning to us. Father God, help us to see these things. Not that we would be necessarily crushed by that reality, but that that humility would become to us freeing. That a confession of our weakness, a confession of our need to be what you have made us to be, would help us to put off this charade of thinking that we can be like you, that we can be God of our own life, that we can dictate for ourselves what truth is and how we should live. But rather, God, we we come to you knowing that you are the only source of goodness and truth. Guide our lives, Lord God. Give direction to our steps. Help us to rejoice in what you have revealed to us and give us the eyes to see it because if you don't, we never will. So we pray that, Lord, as we worship you, as we sing of your attributes and of your grace, God, that we would be equipping our hearts to be able to tell the difference between true God and false God. We love you and thank you and ask that you would glorify yourself throughout the world today in Jesus' name, amen.